Hello, and welcome to the Good Life Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're listening, we hope that you'll be encouraged, challenged, and that you would hear the invitation to be a part of the transformative work of God. This episode is a part of our series on the Minor Prophets. I really hope you enjoy. Today, we continue our series on the Minor Prophets. And last week, we were looking at a guy by the name of Jonah. And uh, one of the things that we kind of landed on saying last week is that one of the big lessons that we can get from the book of Jonah is never bet against the mercy of God. Never bet against the mercy of God. And it's challenging. That book is confronting because we see ourselves in Jonah. It's a mirror that reminds us the fact that we live in the tension between what justice looks like for us and what God's mercy and ultimately what His justice looks like. And it's a challenging thing for us. Today we're going to look at the prophet Habakkuk. Or when I was young, I used to say Habakkuk. But in trying to research the best way to be able to pronounce this, guess what? All the research says it both ways. Except for the research that you found that says it the way you want it to be said. But I found Hebrew, uh, sorry, Jewish people that were, that were saying it both ways. So we're not going to worry too much about that because it's not even the point. This little book is another small little book that's part of what we call the Book of the Twelve. These twelve that we call minor prophets, which is something that in our age, you know, Christians call this section of the Scriptures. But let's be clear, they are not minor prophets. They are neither literally little people, and they do not have a small message. They have a challenging, confronting, bold at times hard to deal with message, especially when we try to read these through the lens of Christ, our Savior, the Word made flesh. The context of this book is last week we were talking about um, Israel in the north and how Israel ended up becoming a divided kingdom between the north and the south. And in the south you had Judah. And the book of Habakkuk is a book that centers around Judah Israel's already been pretty much decimated in the north. The Assyrians have come in. Judah remains. But Habakkuk is written in the time in which Israel is deeply corrupted. The leaders of Israel are leading in horrendous ways. They are not living according to the Torah or the the scriptures as they have been given. They're, They're engaging in unjust or unjust practices. And their nation is under judgment from God. And the prophets, multiple prophets, are declaring that Israel and Judah need to repent and they need to turn back to God and to His purposes and to find their identity again back in Him rather than living out, trying to be just like the other nations of the world. And it's in this time that we have the impending doom, really, of Judah in which Babylon is a rising empire that's ultimately going to take over everything. And we know in the story, ultimately, they come in and they take over Judah. Many of the people in Judah are taken taken into exile, into Babylon. You may know the story of Daniel and the three characters we mentioned last week, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who 
a whole group of them end up in exile. And it's in this time just before that Babylonian exile that we have the story of Habakkuk. And you can see this on the map. Um, we have this example here. You'll see the southern kingdom there. You'll see the time in which just before 70 years of exile, we have Habakkuk. The name Habakkuk is really interesting. It comes from the Hebrew word Shabak, which means the emptiness embraced. The emptiness embraced. Some scholars unpack the, the, the double-sided meaning of Habakkuk's name, which is one who wrestles and one who embraces. I want you to hold on to those two almost competing thoughts, the tension there around this name of this prophet, the one who wrestles and the one who embraces, because both aspects of this, I think, are something that we need to be reflecting on as we consider our own faith journeys. Quick outline of this little book that only has three chapters. In chapter one of the book of Habakkuk, we have the prophet questioning God on what he sees happening in Judah. And his, his troubles, the, the, the fact that he's overwhelmed with the fact that he sees his nation and his people abandoning the ways of God. And he's crying out to God and he's saying, how long, God, is this going to go on for? And so he poses these questions to God and then God responds by saying that he's going to use the Babylonian empire to basically bring about his justice and purposes with Judah. But then Habakkuk has a problem with that too. He's like, hang on a second. How is it that you can use another e evil nation, according to Habakkuk's understanding, even more wicked and evil than Judah, to actually bring about your purposes in our nation? Isn't there another way? How can you let this happen? And then God responds, and he does so in chapter 2. And in chapter 2, we actually read God's response in unpacking the five woes, you may call it, or the five significant issues that God actually also has with Babylon, which we'll get to in a moment. And the chapter ends where we are reminded that it is God who sits on the throne. Chapter 3 is really a reflective, and the whole thing in many ways is written like a poem or a writing that's expressing Habakkuk's both vision and also his emotion as he comes to terms with the fact that his reality looks horrendous. His future, at least as far as he can see, doesn't look any good either. And so he's in a desperate situation. And it's in this chapter that we see this prayer in which he cries out, in the midst of horrendous circumstances that he finds himself in, and his nation does. And he cries out to God, declaring and remembering God's faithfulness. And there's all these pictures and images, really, that go back to the book of Exodus, as he calls on the great story and the memory of what God has done in the past. And his prayer is a bold and raw and honest one as he says, God, I remember, and we remember what it is you have done in the past when you delivered us from the nations that kept us oppressed. In other words, Egypt and Pharaoh. And you delivered us. Do it again, is his prayer request. 
And then it ends with a powerful prayer and statement of faith that we'll get to in a few moments. But this question of how long, God, is one that confronts all of us. Have you ever asked that question in your own faith journey? How long? There's been a number of different seasons in my life. And I say a life that, for the most part, as I look back through history and I think about where I've ended up living in this time in history in the world, in a time of relative peace, in a time at least in this country where I grew up in an era with great abundance and wealth that I couldn't even recognize because I only ever compared our wealth with our neighbors who had a double-story house when we had a single-story house. And those silly conversations you have with your parents when you're young, like, will we ever be rich like those people? And your parents trying to explain to you, we are kind of rich, but yeah, they got a mongoose BMX for Christmas and you got one that dad found and put together for you and... You're still rich because most kids throughout history never got a bike, but you got a bike and it's not as good as their bike. And you know that whole, but you're only seeing through this tiny little aspect of your life. You can't see the whole, you can't see the rest of the world. And so often, and this is part of the tension in our own faith journeys, we see our faith through the lens of only our own individual life rather than the greater context of both the community, the era that we live in, the nations of the world, and also the history of the world. And so this book really delves into us having to have a bit of a a look at our own lives and also have the permission to actually wrestle with this idea of when things aren't going well in our life, what do we do? There was a significant season in my life when I was in my early 30s where it felt like everything in my life as I knew it at the time swept away from me. I went through an incredibly painful season of my life that I had to navigate in a public context like a church community where I was a leader. And in that time of what was suffering for me, I went through probably one of the most significant learning faith journeys of my life. It was both a wrestling with an untangling from unhealthy and unhelpful faith frameworks that basically I realized I'd spent most of my life in a position where I couldn't ask the question how long, at least publicly, and at least in song, and at least in my devotions, because to ask the question how long felt like it lacked faith. And the faith tradition that I grew up in had a strong emphasis on faith, but its angle on faith was only ever saying positive faith statements. Anyone know what I'm talking about? What this book, what this prophet tells us, as well as the Psalms and the book of Lamentations and so many other of the writings of God, including Jesus, our Savior on the cross, including Psalm 22 on the whole of it, is that God is okay with our questioning. That God is okay with our doubts. That God is okay when we struggle and we wrestle. 
how long? Habakkuk 1, verse 2 says, How long, O Lord, he says, must I call for help? But you do not listen. Violence is everywhere, I cry, but you do, but you do not come to save. This is his very real experience. I don't know if you've experienced this, but I clearly remember driving home one day after a, being part of an experience where there was a horrific accident and praying the prayer of God, please have mercy, of God, please do a miracle, of God, I'm begging you, only to then receive a phone call that gave me the total opposite news that I was crying out for. And I resonate with this because I'm saying, God, you're not listening. God, what I see is destruction and death and pain and suffering. Where are you? And what I realized is, through my faith journey, is that the very feeling of the absence of God doesn't mean God is absent. But it is a very real feeling. Our Savior experienced it and expressed it on the cross. Even though Psalm 22 says that God never abandons, and God never turns His face, and God never leaves us. But our lived experience is one we hold in tension. And this is why I want to share three thoughts today, and the first one is this. Lament is a good and faithful expression. And Habakkuk shows us how to be honest with God. He shows us in this book that we have, that's part of the scriptures, the prophets that we have to respond on. This was Jesus' Bible, you could say, that it's okay to express sheer disappointment and pain and frustration and question. And it's actually part of the process, I believe, in which God forms us and shapes us. Habakkuk smashes that positive faith confession theology as a formula where we fear that if we were to say what we feel, that would be perceived as breaking the formula of faith in which God says, sorry, I can't reward you, I can't give you what you need, you can't get the miracle now because you questioned, you doubted, you struggled, you wrestled, you wondered where God is. And yet, we have to live with the tension that in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, we have this chapter that tells us, many people refer to it as the, the hall of fame of the the great people of faith. Hebrews 11. It's, Hebrews 11 is the chapter that reminds us that in the beginning there are these great people of faith who trusted God and saw God do great things in their lives and in this time. But if you only read the first few verses, that will reinforce the idea that, ah, oh, here's what you have to do to get God to act, to make everything work well for you. But if you go and you read on the rest of the chapter, you actually read that the faithful people of God were the people who believed God for a promise that they did not see in their lifetime as we know it. 
It was a future thing that would take place. And yet they are declared righteous and faithful for trusting God, even when it didn't happen in their time. And some of them suffered in the most horrific ways. Some of them, the scripture says, were sawn in two. Some of them suffered the sword and were and experienced horrendous things in their life. And this is why it's incredibly dangerous to create a theology that says that if bad things happen to you in your life, it's because you lack faith. Because you're going to have a very hard time trying to defend that theology with so much of the Scripture, including the very life of Jesus himself. A man who was well acquainted with sorrow and pain. And this book reminds us that faith is so much more complex, that faith is so much bigger than just a quick formula for how we make good things happen in our life. The rest of the chapter in chapter one goes on to be this questioning, these two big questions that Habakkuk asked, which is first of all, why are you not acting God, and why are the, is the nation of Judah getting away with what it's getting away with? He's grieved that his people are not living out their calling and their purpose of God. And then the second question when God says, I'm going to deal with it, and I'm going to deal with it by bringing in the Babylonians to deal with it. He's then like, you have got to be kidding. You have got to, you're going you're to use another more violent nation to deal with our violence and our evil and our sin? And God's like, yeah. And then in chapter 2, he goes on to say how, and they also won't get away with the fact that this cycle of violence that almost deals with itself will continue until God finally redeems and restores and makes all things new. And this is a very hard message for Habakkuk to get his head around. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 2, we see the second response from God to Habakkuk where he says, what is the commonly known scripture? Then the Lord answered me and said, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so that a runner may run with it. For there is still a vision for the appointed time. It speaks of the end and it does not lie. If it seems to tarry or is slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. This verse is often used in the context of the importance of vision. Hey, we've got to have a vision and you've got to write it down and so that people can run with it. But if you actually put it back in a historical context, yeah, I agree with the idea as a general principle. Write the vision down, make it clear so someone can run with it. The problem is, <laughs> this ain't the vision you want to be putting up inside your church. Hey, guess what, everyone? Over the next coming years, this is what we can look forward to. Just want it all nice and plain and clear for you all to see. The Babylonians, they're going to come in and take us over. They're going to deal with us for our wickedness. Who wants to sign up for membership today? Woo! You know, it's like, what? It's not very inspiring. Imagine being a bucket and you have to deal with this. And then in verse 3, it says, Look at the proud. Their spirit is not right in them, but the righteous live by their faith, or can be translated by their faithfulness. This is a verse that Paul in the New Testament goes to quote from and use multiple times throughout the New Testament in responding to the, it's the righteous who will live by faith or the just will live by faith. 
In other words, the people of God will live by faithfully putting their lives into the hands of God and trusting Him and His ways. And they will reorientate every aspect of their lives around His purposes and live that out faithfully in whatever circumstances they find themselves in. Whether that's in a nation under judgment or whether that's in the early church where there was incredible persecution against the followers of Jesus. It goes on in this chapter to talk about these five woes that, that God actually has as he addresses the problem of the Babylonian Empire. And these are them. And I think it's easy for us to sit back and go, wow, they were bad people. Look at what they were doing. But for us to not use this as a lens to consider how even in this day and age, the empires that we have today, whether they be brutal, dictatorial uh, leadership, or whether they be corporations, or whatever they do, wherever the power is, this should be a lens that should help us consider, are we in any way participating in any of these things that goes against God's plans for humanity? And here's what some of these woes are. Number one, theft by violent extortion. This is what the Babylonians were doing. Unjust economic practices that keep people trapped in debt. Slave labor and violence. We still have this rampant today. Leaders indulgent partying while others suffer. We read in the, in the second half of this that the leaders of this land are boozing up and living extremely promiscuously while their nation and those that they're occupying are suffering. And number five, the Babylonians are enslaved to the idolatry of money, of power, and national security at all cost. In other words, they have put their hope in chariots and horses rather than in the creator of the universe who wants to see all people flourish, who wants to see a river of justice and mercy and goodness. And so you see this major contrast. And then the chapter ends with, Verse 20, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. This is a bold and a jolting verse that reminds us we should reflect on the way we all live our lives individually, as a church, as a nation, as a people in the world, and remember that it is God who is on the throne and it is God who is challenging us to reflect on whether or not any of our ways are unjust and causing pain and suffering for others. The second thing I want to share with you today is this. It's important when we're in difficult and painful times where everything around about us seems bad, that we remember what God has done before. Or another way of thinking about this is to remember the character of God. That yes, God is a God of justice, and it's confusing to try and make sense and understand what does His justice look like compared to our own sense of justice and our own timing of when this justice should be issued. And this is a battle and a wrestle for theologians and for leaders and for nations and for churches to wrestle with. But it's so important that we remember that in times when everything looks bleak, when it feels like, man, things in my life are not going good at the moment. 
that we actually remember and we go back to the stories of old that remind us of the character and the heart of God. That even through justice, mercy triumphs ultimately. That wherever there is judgment, God's judgment is not an end in itself, but a pathway to restoration and to healing. And the, the ultimate story of the scripture, as we see from Genesis to Revelation, is that God is going to redeem and restore and make all things new. And he has begun this new creation through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we get to participate in that renewal and that restoration. And in chapter 3 of Habakkuk, verse 2, we have this example of him doing exactly this. As he wrestles with what's happening in his lifetime, he says, Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. And he says, repeat them in our day. Have you ever said that? Have you ever prayed that? I have. God, you have done great and marvelous things in the past. Would you redeem and restore? I think this is a prayer we can pray for the global church at the moment. There's a shaking happening on the earth. And it gets confusing because the shaking gets interpreted by everyone in different ways. For some people, it's a shaking in which, yeah, all of our right-end politics gets to have a chance, and it's a shaking in which everyone on this end goes, our faith gets to be exposed be expressed through our left-end view of the world. It's a shaking in which our versions of things get a chance to get elevated. But I actually think what's happening is there's a far bigger shaking that's taking place in that we're being humbled to come back to the very core message of Christ, of what it means to be the humble servants of the world, rather than the silly language that became huge, especially in the 90s and the early 2000s, language like where to be the head and not the tail, you know, our, our lust and desire for political power as the church, rather than being the prophetic voice of God to the nations and to the governments of our world, rather than actually living out humbly what it means, without trying to have the very, or, or do the very thing that empires have done throughout the ages in which we actually end up, and, and churches and parachurch organizations and anyone are looking for the same power that the world's looking for. But I think there's a shaking going on in which we say, no, 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 we have to come back to live our lives the way Jesus did. He didn't come to conquer and to rule by using military power. He actually gave his life up on a cross. This is the way. This is the way in which we live our lives or are called to live our lives. And so when we say, God, do it again today, I think what we need to be saying is, God, do it again today. But I'll be honest, God, it's probably not the way I exactly want you to do it. Because I don't even know if I'm ready for your purifying fire that humbles and transforms, in which I have to let go of my addiction to consumerism, of my addiction towards materialism, of my addiction towards wanting to be as powerful, or like the people of Israel cried out, we want a king, we want a king, we want a king. And God said, no, I am your king. I will lead you through the prophets. And they're like, no, we want to be like the other nations. All right, 
They end up getting what they want, and it ended in nothing but disaster and destruction. But God in His mercy doesn't leave us in our judgment. He redeems, restores, and He presents to us our King in human flesh, our Savior Jesus. And the call is for us to say like Habakkuk did, God, repeat it. Do it again, but do it like you've done through Christ our Savior. In our time, please, in wrath, remember mercy. And may that be our cry. And the third and final point I want to share with you today is this. Faith in God's character transcends suffering. Faith in God's character transcends our suffering personally and around us. And what this doesn't mean is that our suffering doesn't matter and isn't real. It's extremely real, and we have an example of what it means to bring that before God in its pure, raw form. But what it means is that we find ourselves doing what Habakkuk does in this context. His future looks bleak. His current situation is horrendous. He's perhaps fearing for his own life as well as his nation. And yet, there's this like jolting shift where you don't even get to see the transition of how he moves from his desperate cry of frustration and anger and wrestling with God to also his embrace of the love and mercy of God. Habakkuk wrestles. Habakkuk embraces. And then we have these words. Even though the fig trees have no blossoms and there are no grapes on the vine, even, and there are, uh, even though the olive, tree, the olive crop fails and the fields lie empty and barren, even though the flocks die in the fields and the cattle barns are empty. Key word here. One letter in Hebrew Yet, yet, which is a word that should cause us to not neglect what has gone before, but to sit fair and square with it and look, man, I am not in denial of what's happening here. This is not a, how's things going for you today? Yeah, everything's good. God is good. He's sitting on the throne. He's amazing. And then you get back in your car and you're like, I don't even know if God is real. I can't see God at work in my life in any way. I'm struggling. Everything's overwhelming. No. This is a, you know what? There's no fruit. I don't know what's going on. I can't see anything good at the moment. But, or yet, even in the face of that context, he says, I will rejoice in the Lord. Not in his circumstances or his situation or this like fake denial of what's going on, but he will rejoice in the Lord. Why? Because he remembers who God is, what his character is. I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes me as sure-footed as a deer able to tread upon the heights. Wow. What a challenging and confronting passage. So let me end this by saying this. I think we're challenged to both wrestle and embrace faithfully with God. Wrestle with our circumstances and embrace the goodness of the character of God that we see in our lives. Many of you will be familiar with this story of one of the famous hymns that we have sung for at least the last 150 years. But I want to remind you today, if you're familiar with the story, of Horatio Spafford who was a Presbyterian layman, a successful lawyer, 
and a real estate investor in Chicago. When the great Chicago fire happened in 1871, Horatio lost his fortune, everything. But before the, the Chicago fire, his four-year-old son had died from scarlet fever. He had five children. The family was under a lot of stress and pressure and his wife was so overcome with grief at the loss of her son that he decided to send his wife and four daughters to England for a vacation. He was gonna join them after he finished with some business he had to take care of. There's some slides to go along with this. But unfortunately, the ship and his family was traveling on, was involved in a horrendous collision while crossing the Atlantic Ocean on the 22nd of November, 1873. And in 12 minutes, it sank. All four of his daughters passed, along with 200 other people. And when his wife, Anna, reached Cardiff in Wales, she sent her husband a telegram that began, and we have a picture of the actual writing of this, saved alone, what shall I do? After receiving the telegram, Horatio immediately set sail for England, and during the voyage, the captain was aware Horatio had lost his four daughters in this collision, and he requested for Horatio to join him. He pointed out the location where the collision had occurred, and being a devout follower of Christ, he thought about his four daughters, and he was comforted by the hope that he had in his Savior and the very presence of God with him. He went to his room and he penned the words that are on this slide of the great song, It Is Well With My Soul. When they returned home, the Spaffords had friends visit them and one of those friends was Philip Bliss, who was a vocalist and a songwriter, who took this poem that he wrote and he composed it. This is part of the words that he said. And I'll see if we can get the, um, the words of this song uh, up on the screen because I want to read this to you. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And I want to be super clear when I say this. What this song is not saying is I'm cool with the suffering. And I'm okay with what, and this denial of pain and heartache. What this is saying is in my deep heartache and pain and suffering, when there are no grapes, when there are no olives, when I have lost all that is dear to me, I can do nothing else but remember like Habakkuk did, what God has done before, what God's character is, and that in this broken world, our hope is in the beauty and the love and the presence of God, whom we call Emmanuel, meaning God with us. That enables us to be able to say, it's well with my soul, because I put my life in the hands of God, and I trust Him. Thanks for listening to the Good Life Podcast today. Remember that you can stay up to date by subscribing on whichever platform you're listening on right now. We would love it if you could give us a like and follow on social media 
or even leave a five-star review. It all helps in getting the good news out there. You can also head to our website, goodlife.org.au or our YouTube for video content and resources. Until next time, peace.